Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Just before we jump in, today's podcast is brought to you by my premium coaching program, Lean Gut Mind Method. In this busy world, women struggle to prioritize their health and they constantly find themselves frustrated with a lack of results. Lean Gut Mind Method coaching service provides expertise, personalization, and a proven system of tools so that women find themselves empowered to live their best lives in a body that they choose. If you're a female who struggles with weight loss, emotional eating, and poor gut health, and you're ready to change once and for all, let me and my team help you. Lean Gut Mind Method is the last nutrition program you will ever need to invest in, and the first program you will see lasting results from. Let us show you the way. Apply for my premium one-on-one coaching program at www.leangutmindmethod.com. A big welcome to today's special podcast guest, dietitian Elena Eford, who is talking all about metabolic health. Elena is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified eating disorder dietitian and a sports dietitian who specializes in metabolic health. Elena has been trained in multiple areas of dietetics and uses the metabolic testing and body composition analysis at her clinic to help her clients meet their nutritional goals. On today's episode, Elena and I start off by talking about what our metabolism is, whether there's a genetic link there, how to improve our metabolism, foods that help or hinder our metabolism, and metabolic testing and body composition analysis. We also discuss chronic under-eating, how to know if you've been dieting for too long, the concept of eating more to lose weight, and finally, we run through a case study on why we should stop with the juice detoxes. You can follow Elena on TikTok. She is at Elena Eford. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and leave us a positive rating or review to let us know how much you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to our podcast, Elena. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to chat about metabolism. Yeah, and it's something that honestly, I'm sure the both of us get asked so many questions about day in, day out. There's a lot of myths out there. So I'm really, really excited to put some of those myths to bed with you today, but also to explain what is the actual research and science behind um, things like our metabolism. Yeah, there's, as you said, a lot of different misinformation, and a lot of different things you've heard. So definitely happy to go over all of that stuff. Wonderful. Well, let's start with the basics, as I like to do on my podcast. Um, and just, I guess, you sharing with our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, the different things that you do on a day-to-day basis as a dietitian, and even maybe how you, you came to you know be a dietitian or want to be and work in this space. Yeah. So I work with in an outpatient setting. So I see people on a one-on-one basis and they come into our clinic. And as we're talking about, we do metabolic testing at the clinic that I work at. So we use that metabolic test information to help guide the individual and what's best for their body. So we get that baseline information about where their metabolic rate is. And then we go from there and come up with a nutrition plan that's going to be best for them and unique to them. How I got in this position actually is when I first became a dietitian, I was working in kind of a clinical setting and then I was working in clinical eating disorders like in a hospital setting. And then what I transitioned to doing is a little bit in the athlete sports world. And in a lot of the universities here in the United States, they use metabolic testing so that they can help figure out a nutrition plan for those athletes. And I really loved using that. And so then we actually relocated. We were living in Virginia, and then we moved to Vermont. And when we came to Vermont here in the States, we I found this place that was using metabolic testing. And so that's how I got involved with the Calm Clinic. And ever since then, I've been the lead dietitian in this outpatient clinic here in Vermont. That's so exciting. And your time at the hospital as a clinical dietitian, was that spent working with, um, I guess, like acute eating disorders? So the ones on the ward who would come in and very much go through that the sort of the process that we do here in Australia, it's very much two feeding depending on how low their BMI is and then they'll transition more into the outpatient setting. So was it um, the types of eating disorders, I guess, that were more the anorexias or was it more more sort of outpatient eating disorders, more, um, I guess, like binge eating, otherwise specified types? 
My experience was mostly with the anorexia. So yeah, it was inpatient, very acute level of care, like you just described with some people on tube feedings and really needing that kind of immediate refeeding. So it was the very acute level. I worked as a clinical dietitian for six years as well before I started um, Leanne Ward Nutrition as well. So we probably had similar, um, I guess, experiences despite being in opposite worlds or opposite ends of the um, you know world. But um, with that, did you, um, obviously you wouldn't have had much access to a lot of those sort of metabolic testings. And we don't sort of talk about, you know, metabolisms and requirements. Like we take a good scientific estimated guess in terms of clinical inpatients, but we never really do see the true extent of some of that damage that can happen to, you know, metabolisms long-term with things like eating disorders, do we? We really don't. And at that level, yeah, we weren't testing it. All we knew is that we had to get more food into them. And we knew that it was a lot more food than maybe the lay person because their body needed that. But yeah, we didn't really see the lowest of the low in terms of what the metabolism or how the metabolism was impacted at that level of care. And I'm so excited that you're you're our expert on the podcast today to talk through some of these, you know, like real life case studies that you've been seeing in your practice to date. Yeah, there's some really interesting things out there. I mean, I even learned just coming to the Calm Clinic and working with metabolism that metabolism is so much different than even what I learned in school. So, oh, I'm so excited. Let's go. <laughs> so let's start by talking about really simply like what is our metabolism? So if we have a listener at home who's like, well, I kind of understand what our metabolism is, but you know, what does it do inside our body? Is there a, a strict definition of what our metabolism is? Yes and no. So of course, our metabolism is what our body is burning at rest, right? So I think that there's a lot of confusion around what entails your resting metabolic rate, what's your total daily needs. There's a lot of different things. But what we are measuring is your resting metabolic rate. That's RMR, or sometimes it's interchangeable for BMR, which would be basal metabolic rate. And that's quite literally, sometimes we refer to it as your body's furnace. It's what your body is burning every day to get you to just function. What we always like to say is that all of your organs, they require calories just to do what they need to do every day. Your body requires calories just to lay in bed, and that can be what your resting metabolic rate is. So that's your resting metabolism. And then what a lot of people I know, they either Google or they hear somewhere is, well, what about all these other things that your body's burning, right? So a lot of times what's happening is they're taking that resting metabolic rate, and then you have to add for the fact that you're assuming you're not in a coma and laying at rest all day, you're getting up and moving around. And then there's the thermic effect of food, which is the calories that your body burns just burning the food that you're eating. And then, of course, you have to count for the calories during exercise. So all of those added together are like your total daily needs. But- The resting metabolic rate is the thing that I think gets the most confusion because I think a lot of people assume that your resting metabolic rate you're just born with and it can never change, but really it can change based on how you're fueling your body. Wonderful. And I love that you brought up the important concept that bodies need food, even if they're in a coma, even if they're doing absolutely no activity, because I think there's a large misconception on social media. I'd say more with our younger population, but you know, I see it in the, you know, adult educated population as well, where I always like to use the example when I used to work with some, um, you know, clients who had had a huge stroke and they were essentially bed bound going to a nursing home. We would still give them three meals and two snacks a day, whether that was able to be eaten orally or whether that was by a tube, they would still get that same amount of food, even though they weren't really doing anything. You know, a lot of them had immobilized limbs. They couldn't even, you know, move their arms or anything from quite severe strokes. So we would still have to feed them quite a lot of food because that is their, you know, basal metabolic requirements and bodies need food to survive regardless of whether they're doing exercise or not. So I think that was a wonderful point that you brought up. Yeah, it's funny. I actually tell my clients the exact same thing. I'm like, even if you were in a coma, we'd feed you. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because um, we used to have these beautiful nurses that I used to work with sometimes in, you know, the intensive care unit and clients would be in a coma for, you know, quite a long time. And they used to paint their nails and they used to, you know, do their hair. And it's like their hair still grows because we're feeding their bodies, you know, their nails still grow because we're feeding their bodies, even though they're not awake, even though they're not alert, their bodies still need nourishment, don't they? So I think that's a really important point where I think a lot of people really try to starve themselves or um, don't give their body anywhere near enough calories because, you know, they want to quote unquote lose weight and they think that if they're injured or if they're sick or they're not doing much activity, they almost like don't deserve food. And that breaks my heart and I'm sure it does for you as well. 
you know, younger people thinking that sort of way. So I hope that that's one of the first myths of many that we can sort of call a myth in this podcast. Yeah, I totally agree. So in terms of our metabolism, I think one of the questions I get asked all the time or people talk about this quite a lot on social media is, oh, I've got a fast metabolism or I've got a slow metabolism or, you know, I'm genetically blessed. And I think a lot of these, you know, so-called influencers that are selling their diet programs and their fitness workouts online, a lot of them have these fabulous bodies, but let's be honest, they're genetically blessed. A lot of it isn't actually to do with the diet that they're following or the fitness that they're prescribing. They just have great genetics. So is there a genetic link between our metabolism being fast or being slow? Can that be related back to, um, you know, our parents and our grandparents? There's a small genetic link, but like you just mentioned, the, the link isn't as strong as people lead on. So as you've heard, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard, a lot of times people say exactly what you just said, like, oh, I'm doomed to have a slow metabolism, or, you know, my mom gave me a slow metabolism, I'm stuck with that. But a lot of it's actually not true. So there, there is a small genetic link. For example, if someone's resting metabolic rate is 1500 the person of the same age, height, and weight, their resting metabolic rate might be 1,700. Not a huge discrepancy there. Really, the big thing is how you're fueling your body. So I know I mentioned your resting metabolic rate kind of being your furnace. So the analogy that we always use is if you put a lot of logs on a fire, you're going to have a nice high flame. Those logs are our food. The more you're eating, the more your body is going to burn, the more effective that your body is going to be, and the higher your metabolism is likely to get. And then vice versa, when you're not eating enough, there's not a lot of logs on that fire, that flame is going to dwindle, and so your metabolism is going to drop. So short answer is there's a small genetic component, but actually how we fuel our bodies has more of an impact on your metabolism than just your genetics do. I love that. So our listeners are not doomed. So please keep listening, guys. (laughs) There are so many things that we can do um, to improve our metabolic rate over time, isn't there? And you mentioned one of the most simple things is simply to eat more. And I know that probably scares the heck out of a lot of people because you and I both get so many clients who say, well, I want to lose weight. Why would I eat more? That defeats the purpose, right? But what are some small things besides, we'll we'll dive into the the eating more to lose more a little bit later on, but just quickly, are there anything um, that we can do to improve our metabolic rate. Say if we are only in a smaller body, um, you know, I have a lot of clients who say, well, I want to eat what you eat. I'm like, I'm six foot one, you know, you're four foot 11. That, that it's not going to happen. Like we're, we're in very different bodies. Right. And so besides growing or, you know, getting a knee implant or anything like that, what are some simple things that we can do to um, improve our metabolic rate over time? So I know you said we'll dive into it, but of course, eating a little bit more will help. Another thing is actually as it pertains to exercise. So when you strength train and when you build a little bit of muscle, your muscle is metabolically active. So a lot of times your metabolism is going to pick up with that increase in muscle. Now, I'm not saying you have to become a power lifter or do intense lifting like that, but a little bit of strength building can help, especially like you mentioned, when there's a big discrepancy and maybe ages or heights or whatever it might be, some building some muscle and then really eating consistently. Yeah. And not having those huge days where you go, you know, trying to starve yourself on like 800 calories for a couple of days and then have this like huge binge on like 4,000 on another day. Yeah, exactly. It's the consistency that's really important. My clients like to joke with me that that's my favorite word because it's true. I always tell them exactly that. I don't want you to have a day where you only eat a thousand calories and then a day where you eat 4,000. I'd rather you eat the middle of that 2000 every day or something like that. Definitely. Now I do get a lot of questions from um, new mums, for example, who, when we talk about sleep, sleep being incredibly important for AR general health, but also to help us impact, you know, weight loss overall, because the more lack of sleep that we get, the more that tends to drive up those hunger hormones and drive down those hormones that keep us feeling full and satiated. So sleep does have an impact in that way, but does sleep have a direct impact on our metabolism? Is that something else that we can do in terms of looking at improving our metabolic rate overall? I've tried to read some research on this, and the jury is still a little bit out, but what is known is, yes, the more consistent your sleep can be, the better success you're going to have in pretty much everything. So they call it sleep hygiene. If you can go to bed roughly at the same time every day and wake up roughly the same time every morning, that's going to be best for helping your metabolic rate. Because if you think about it, then the hours that you're awake are very similar. And back to that word consistency, it will keep your metabolic rate and your what your body's burning higher on a more consistent basis. 
Mm. But if you're a new mom or a new dad, or you're you know you're on night shifts or whatever it may be, don't freak out because it's not the what's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck in terms of improving our metabolic rate. Is it as you mentioned, strength training and actually eating enough are probably the two most incredibly important things. Absolutely, yeah. Sleep is only a very small piece of the puzzle, so. Yes, if you're night shift or whatever it might be, <laughs> you will be just fine. You're not doomed to have a slow metabolism. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'll probably get a few, um, you know, emails saying, "Oh, you mentioned sleep; it's outside of my control." So I'm glad we we cleared that one up. <laughs> now, um, Elena, with foods, I'm sure that you get asked these as many times as I do. You know, drinking cold water, adding lemon into your water in the morning, eating really spicy hot foods. Do these things boost our metabolism? Do they have any effect? Green tea is another one that I hear routinely. I love green tea. I think it's super high in antioxidants. Antioxidants are really important for just general health improvements overall. But do they actually, do these things specifically relate to improving our metabolism? I wish listeners could see my face because no, they do not. So there's no (laughs) magical drink. There's no magical food that is going to increase your metabolism. I think where that comes from is, you know, if you have caffeine or if you have something very spicy, yeah, it's going to increase your metabolism for maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, maybe an hour. But at baseline, it's not increasing your metabolism. So no, there is no food, no drink that is just going to be what what the media or what you know magazines portray as a metabolism booster. And I'm using air quotes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, with the, the caffeine and the chili, is that just because it kind of gets our heart rate up a little bit? Is that why we sort of might burn a little bit more for a short period of time, but that's not going to do anything, I guess, long term to our metabolism? Yes, that's exactly right. The same way as exercise. So exercise, your metabolism is going Mm -hmm. to come up just a little bit during exercise and maybe for a little bit after, but it's not going to raise your overall basal metabolic rate unless you're building muscle, but that's a whole other thing. But in the moment of exercise and eating those foods, yes, it's because your heart rate is a little bit higher. So your body is just burning a little bit more in that very short moment or whatever it might be. Wonderful. So no specific foods that we can eat that actually help to boost our metabolism. Listeners, you heard it here first. (laughs) It's just, it's a general overall healthy diet, isn't it? Yes. Which I know people, they hate hearing that, you know, they want the fancy thing. They want the the quick fix. They want to put something in their mouth that is like the miracle cure or the thing that they've been searching for. And as dietitians, we want that too, right? Like we got into this field to to help people and obesity is a real problem. Um, You know, here in Australia, over in the States as well, if we had something that we could use to give all of our clients to help, of course we would, we would use that, wouldn't we? But unfortunately we just don't have the research or science to support any one food being effective for fat loss or to boost our metabolism, sadly. You're absolutely right. There's no one food. It all comes down to exactly what you said, the thing that people don't want to hear, which is a long-term commitment to changing food and exercise. (laughs) And I always joke that if there was a magic pill, I'd be the first to know about it and I'd be selling it to you, but there's no magic pill. Yeah, And I'd be buying shares in that with you as well. Now, so strength training helps to improve our metabolism. Eating enough or more helps to improve our metabolism. What are some things that actually slow down our metabolism? Well, first and foremost, not eating enough. So when you don't take in enough food, your body is going, or I should say your metabolism is going to adapt. And the way you have to think about it is your body doesn't want to burn a whole lot more than you're giving it. And so what's going to happen is let's say you're really restricting your intake, you're not eating enough, your metabolism is going to accommodate by dropping from not taking in enough food. So the example that sometimes I give people is if you've maybe been trying to stick to that, you know, magical 1200 calorie number that everybody seems to come across. (laughs) If your metabolism before starting that diet or whatever it was, was 1800, let's say, just averages here. And then you started eating 1200, your metabolism is going to drop to 1200. It's going to meet what you fed it. So that will bring it down. And then, of course, if you're doing absolutely no activity, if you're really sedentary, like we mentioned, and maybe you don't have a lot of muscle mass or something like that, your metabolism may be impacted slightly from that. But the biggest impact is going to be not taking in enough food. 
And that also sort of goes hand in hand because um, I'm also a sports dietitian as well, like yourself, really enjoy that, um, you know, air of sports nutrition, where if we're also, if we're under eating, we're also under eating um, an important macronutrient such as protein, which actually helps us to A, grow our muscles and B, maintain our muscle mass. And for so many people, when they're quote unquote losing weight, it's not just fat that they're losing. Often it's also muscle mass, which in turn is going to decrease our metabolism as well, isn't it? As you mentioned, the more strength training we do, the better our metabolism, the more weight we lose in the wrong way and not match our protein um, regularly throughout the day, the more our muscle mass can drop off, the more we'll see a decrease in our metabolism. What I always say is you don't want to play with fire with that. You really want to keep all of those things nice and high. Mm -hmm. Muscle is so precious. And especially we have the research and studies to support. And we know that as you get older, I think it's after about 40 years of age, you know, roughly, our muscle mass actually starts to drop off as well. So it's even more important for us to strength train and do some sort of resistance training as we get older as well, because, you know, the universe is fighting against us as we get older. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. There's that natural loss of muscle. But if you can keep a high muscle mass and lean mass throughout your even older years, you're going to see much better health, much better longevity. If you were to get some sort of chronic illness, much much better success with battling that chronic illness when your lean mass and muscle is high enough. Absolutely. And we used to see it in the hospital all the time. So patients who had the longest lengths of stay, who had the most complications, it was matched with malnutrition. And often, you know, you can be malnourished and overweight at the same time. And often we would see that sarcopenia, that loss of muscle mass from sitting in a bed from even up to a week, we had that research to support, a, I think it was something like 20, 30% drop in muscle mass just from being bed bound for a week or two. Um, so it's so important. We had a policy within our hospital, the physios would, after a knee or something, um, a knee replacement, they'd get them up and get them going the next day if they could, because we knew how important even just walking around was for maintaining muscle mass, maintaining quality of life and getting them out of hospital quicker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, movement is so important. <laughs> <laughs> now, with chronic undereating, that's something that so many people do. You know, I've, I've met so many clients and I've had so many messages and emails online that say, Leanne, I've been trying to lose weight for three years now. What's happening? What are you doing? Like, what have you been doing for the last three years? So they've been dieting for, you know, two years, three years, five years. I would call this sort of chronic undereating, but they're not losing anything. Can we dive into this a little bit more? Um, I'm sure you've got a ton of clients who are exactly the same as this. How does this affect their metabolism long-term from this chronic dieting or this chronic undereating? Yeah, so it really does cause your metabolism to drop. So what ends up happening is the person decreased their calories for one reason or another. And as I mentioned, your, your metabolism drops along with that. So maybe what they experience, and maybe you, your clients have mentioned this as well, is in the very beginning, like when they first started that calorie change, whatever it might be, they did lose a little bit of weight. And then all of a sudden it's plateaued and then they haven't lost any weight since then, no matter what they've done, right? And the reason is because of exactly that. So let's say they brought their calories down to something pretty low, their metabolism adapted. Our body is really, really good at adapting. And sometimes maybe that's not super helpful for one reason or another, but our bodies are really, really good at keeping us alive. So as a protective measure, your metabolism dropped. And then what happened? So let's say, again, we'll use that example since it's so common. They started eating 1,200 calories. Their metabolism dropped to 1,200 calories. Then effectively, you're no longer in a, we'll call it a deficit, right? And so they feel like they have to eat even less. So maybe they bring their calories down to 1,000, but then their metabolic rate drops to 1,000. And then maybe they keep going lower and lower with calories. Hopefully they don't, but as you know, a lot of people do. And they're just so frustrated because they feel like they get to this point where they just can't eat any less, but their body's still not losing any sort of weight. And that's because I've seen plenty of people who maybe their metabolic rate is 900 or something super, super low like that. And so as a result, they're just stuck. Their body has put put them in this place where it's trying to protect them. So it's dropped their metabolic rate. It's done its job. It's done. Biology has won there. It's done a great job of bringing your metabolic rate down, but you effectively can't eat anything less. And so then, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but that's a whole different story about how we need to correct that and stop continuing to eat so little because we need food. Like we mentioned in the very beginning, our bodies need food. And by starving it, you're not going to meet your goals. 
And from your experience, Elena, what would you say is the sort of approximate time frame that it takes for someone to, you know, decrease their metabolism? You know, if they went on a 800 calorie juice cleanse for five days, would that be enough to do some marked damage in terms of their metabolism? Or is it really like that chronic constant dieting and under eating for a good six to 12 months time? I think it varies. I think the quickest that I have seen people's metabolic rate really show an impact has been within about three months. Some people, yes, it takes Mm -hmm. a little bit longer and can be more like six to 12 months. Uh, It wouldn't necessarily happen in five days, not saying that you should toy with that. But (laughs) yes, in the, the quickest would be about three months when someone's body is really resistant, maybe six to 12 months, but your metabolism can actually drop a lot faster than you think when you start to under eat. And I'm going to throw another curly one at you. Now, in terms of that like chronic yo-yo dieting where they're dieting, then they're kind of falling off the wagon, they're regaining the weight, they're dieting again, losing it, regaining it, versus somebody, um, let's bring it back to sort of our eating disorder population with severe anorexia nervosa. You know, you and I both, I think the lowest weight, um, we use kilograms here in Australia, I saw in the hospital was um, 26 kilos. I think the lady actually ended up passing away. It was very, very, very severe. I think it was BMI eight or BMI nine, I think. And how do some bodies get to the point where they can just keep continuing to lose weight versus other bodies get to the point where if they do, you know, have a period of dieting or under eating, their metabolism just so much slower. Is it something to do with, you know, muscle mass or is it just sometimes some bodies react one way and other bodies react another way? I think it's the latter, that some bodies react one way and other bodies react another way. I think a lot of it has to come down to genetics as well, right? So there's always a genetic component in everything that we're doing. And there's some people who I think their bodies are, sometimes we use the word stubborn in terms of losing fat. And then there's other bodies who lose fat very quickly, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, like you mentioned with the anorexia patient. But I think it comes down to genetics more so than everything else. All of our bodies are unique. And that's a good thing and something to be celebrated. But that's why people react differently to different diets. That's why if we lined up 10 different people and fed them the exact same thing and gave them the exact same exercise and they followed it to a T, they would all still look different. Definitely. And it even comes back to um, how our, our gut microbiome um, is is operating as well and what we're actually feeding our body as well, which is, um, you know, what I'm most excited about in the in the newest research in terms of the gut health space as well, because there is some more research coming out around, you know, how our gut health influences weight loss, for example, like they fed, you know, twins to, you know, basically the same people, you know, genetically or whatnot, the same exact same diet. And they have two different results because of their different gut health bacteria, or they've transplanted different gut health bacteria into the twins as well. Um, And they've done that in mice and also in humans as well. So I think that that's really sort of exciting stuff where it's not just the quote unquote calories we put into our body, the quality of our diet matters as well, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned that because where I used to work in that clinical setting with eating disorders, they were doing research, collecting fecal samples for exactly that to see if they could change the gut microbiome in individuals with anorexia to better help them either restore weight or not relapse or see if there was even a connection between that gut microbiome and exactly what we were just mentioning about why those people did get to such a low BMI, whereas other people might not or whatever it might be. So yeah, it's very connected. And I'm super excited for that to continue to come out and us dive further into that. Well, yeah, you'll have to send me that study um, once they're finished with that. Because yeah, that the whole area really, really excites me. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And I really want to ask you more. And I'm sure our listeners are itching for me to be like, Leanne, just ask her about the metabolic testing. <laughs> Because in all honesty, like we, we have them over here in Australia as well, but it's more linked to um, bigger universities. You know, we don't really have a lot of clinics who, you know, as far as I understand, use metabolic testing as part of their, you know, their standard care practice. So I love that you do this for your clients. And I tell you, if we lived in the same place, I'd be coming to you just to, just to see, just for you to, you know, do some of those tests on me and, and see <laughs> out of pure curiosity. But can you explain to my listeners a little bit more about what type of metabolic testing that you do in your clinic and, and how it works? What it's called is indirect calorimetry or, you know, some people ask me if there's a special name and really it's just a metabolic test, but I guess the special name would be indirect calorimetry. And so what it's doing is the one that we use is you lay and you're at rest because of course we're trying to 
get your resting metabolic rate. And there's this bubble or a little hood thing that sits over top of you and you just breathe. And it takes about 20 to 30 minutes and you're going to breathe. And what it's doing is measuring your ratio of the carbon dioxide that you're breathing out versus the oxygen that you're breathing in. And that gives us a number that's called a respiratory quotient. And that tells us approximately if your body is burning more carbohydrates at that time or more fat at that time. And then there's a lot of other things like a couple of different ratios that I won't dive into over the carbon dioxide versus oxygen that then tell us that resting metabolic rate. So that's what the test looks like. And you're right, unfortunately, it's not often used in a clinic like ours. Actually, my clinic, the Calm Clinic, is really one of the first places that is using it in this type of setting where you come in, you get your metabolic test. It's mandatory. We don't use it as like an a la carte item. It's mandatory part of our process. And then you sit with a dietitian to go over all of the details and get set up with a plan. In some instances, not that the information isn't valuable, but in some instances you'll go you'll get the test and then they don't explain anything to you. Or you may go somewhere and it's an option to get, but not necessarily mandatory. But we think the information is so valuable and so helpful. We want all of our clients to get it. So that's what that looks like. And uh, yeah, it's super helpful. We love that we have this technology. Yeah, I love it. And in terms of um, seeing changes over time, how often can someone come back and get another test? Because over here in Australia, if I'm really, um, you know, not seeing the results that I want to with a client, or if I'm really interested to see how much muscle they put on board, I'll send them to get um, a DEXA scan. And DEXA is something for our listeners at home that um, has been traditionally used to measure bone mineral density. So, you know, if you might be at risk of um, osteoporosis or something like that, your doctor might send you to get a DEXA scan, measure your bone mineral density. But that's a cool scan because it also picks up, you know, muscle mass and fat mass at the same time so generally because DEXA uses the same technology as like x-rays they say only you know sort of one or two of them or I think three perhaps let's just go two <laughs> to about two a year um, and not too much more than that because it does have that sort of radio frequency so that's sort of what um, sports dietitians over here in Australia tend to use for a little bit more guidance with our indirect kilometry. It's more linked to research studies in universities, which is cool, but we don't have a lot of clinics that actually offer that to the general public. So I think that's that's really cool that you guys are doing that over there. And how often would you recommend that clients come back and redo that in terms of seeing changes? Is that something that you could do once a week and actually pick up a change or would you need to wait a couple of months in between? We like to do it every couple of months. We probably could see a change in just a week or two, but we like to do it every couple of months because oftentimes if there are changes in your metabolic rate, whether it's dropped or come up, it will take a couple of months for that to happen, like I was mentioning earlier. So most often we recommend that they come back and have the actual metabolic test done every about 8 to 12 weeks or so. And then that way we can get a good idea of what's changing or maybe not changing for one reason or another. But yeah, we can do it pretty frequently. And you're right, the DEXA scan is twice a year. <laughs> and so we can do it much more frequently than the DEXA scan. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I was like, oh God, if I say three times and someone pulls me up on that. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So uh, yeah, about what every six to eight weeks. I think that's a, that's a good time frame. And that gives people enough time to really implement some of those um, more lifestyle and diet changes that you guys would have recommended as well. So you can have a little bit of consistency with your plan as well and actually see if that's able to be followed long-term as well, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times we actually, or I should say most times, we do still check in with people in between doing the testing. We just use the testing as an additional mm -hmm. tool every six to eight weeks or whatever it might be. So. Yeah, so exciting. And in terms of in your clinic, um, what other sort of measurements or markers do you take with your clients? Do you do um, skin folds, for example, in terms of checking um, you know, fat mass, or do you guys just use um, scales or measurements or anything like that besides the, the great... BMR testing? <laughs> yeah, so we do uh, a body composition analysis as well. So that is called like bioelectrical impedance. So the DEXA is what you mentioned. We'll do all of that all at once. We kind of have to break it up into two different machines because, of course, we can't use the DEXA. So we have our metabolic test, which does everything that I just explained. And then we also have a, bio, a body composition analysis, which how that works is we just actually put two little electrodes on your right hand and right foot, and it kind of sends this current through your body to tell us that overall lean mass in your body, fat mass, total body water. So that test at our clinic, we actually do 
every single time someone comes in. And so even if someone is coming in on a weekly basis, we'll do the body composition analysis. And then the metabolic test, as I mentioned, we do a little bit less frequently. But that's really how we measure what's actually changing in terms of lean mass or fat mass or whatever it might be. So you're getting that full sort of profile from the client, which is awesome. And it gives you so much more information than just what jumping on and off, you know, a normal bathroom scale might give you as well, which is really cool. Yeah, it's really, really helpful. Now let's get into the the big question. I think all of our listeners have been waiting for you to answer for us. And it's really around that process of eating more to lose weight. And it's not as simple as let's just start eating as much as possible. Um, You know, a lot of people might term it, you know, reverse dieting as such when you've been in a period of a calorie deficit for quite a long time and you've just stalled or you've actually started to gain a little bit of weight. It's sort of that body's way of saying, hey, you know, I need to come out of this deficit. This isn't working for me anymore. And a lot of people hit that plateau, but they'll stay in that plateau for six months, 12 months, three years. As I mentioned that I've had a lot of people message me saying, hey, I've been dieting for three years, nothing's happening. Um, So can we chat about this concept of um, eating more to lose weight, essentially? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so they're right. That's really what you need to do in some instances. So using that chronic dieter, if their metabolic rate has dropped, like I mentioned before, and let's say it's come down and now it's at 900 or 1,000 when it could be much higher, what we're actually going to do is just in the exact same way that your metabolism adapted by dropping from not eating enough, your metabolism is also going to adapt in the opposite way. So if you do take in more food, your body is going to adapt by increasing that metabolic rate, right? And so let's say, again, Mm -hmm. your metabolic rate has dropped down to 900 or 1,000. If we can increase your intake, let's say we feed you 2,000 calories or something like that, your metabolism is going to increase. And then we can get it back up to a more effective level and get it so that at rest, maybe it's burning 1,700 instead of 1,000. And then we can work on creating a much smaller calorie deficit, not to go down an entirely different route. But what a lot of people do is create these huge calorie deficits. They're creating a calorie deficit of 1,000, 1,500, which is way too much and not effective. So yes, eating more will actually get your metabolism to increase. Your body will effectively burn more food more efficiently. And in a lot of cases, we see people's fat mass come down as a result. Definitely. Yeah. So it's actually, it's sort of like it kind of in clients head, like you sort of said, it gets worse before it gets better. Like you might need to eat more, put on a little bit of weight, but then we can actually get you to where, you know, you want to be longer term. I think it's everyone wants that quick fix, don't they? They're like, this is my goal and I want it immediately. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I think what's really challenging and I totally understand it is some individuals who maybe are being told by their physicians that they need to lose weight. And then I'm telling them like, you know, actually we have to put on a little bit of weight before we can lose weight because of what you've done with these diets in the past. And you're right. A lot of people do feel like that is very counterintuitive and doesn't make sense. And I totally understand it. But when we look at it for how your body's adapting to how you're fueling it, we've got to go the long route. We've got to maybe gain a little bit of weight while you restore that metabolic rate. And then we can more effectively see just fat come down weight will probably follow with it. And that's going to be a lot more long term than doing these crazy crash diets and finding yourself on this cycle of losing all this weight and then regaining all of it plus some. So it feels counterintuitive, but it's the right way to make it effective and more long term. Mm, Absolutely. So it's more looking for those smaller weight loss drops and that smaller calorie deficit, which is going to allow us to stay in a deficit for longer rather than, you know, I think people want to see that, you know, two, three kilos down on the scale in a week or, you know, five pounds down in a week. And they're like, oh, great. This is great. Look how much weight I'm losing. But then they forget that that'll only last a couple of weeks. And then they're sort of at that plateau. Whereas someone who's losing over here in Australia, we very much like to say, depending on the person and the starting point, about half a kilo to a kilo a week is actually a great um, rate of weight loss, which might allow them to be in a deficit for, you know, 12, you know, three, three months, six months or something, maybe not six months, but at least sort of that three, four month mark in order to actually lose that sort of 10 kilos long term and actually keep that off as well, rather than sort of losing a quick five plateauing. And as you mentioned, you got nowhere to go from there because your calories are so low, you can only drop them down further, which sort of isn't realistic because you're starving all day long. (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, slow and steady always wins the race. Even if you feel like you have a lot of weight to lose, slow and steady is the way to go. I think some people think that 
they have a lot of weight to lose, that they can do it a lot faster. But if you look into the studies done in like the biggest loser show, right? Mm-hmm. They all gained their weight back, but their metabolism actually didn't restore with the weight gain. Some of their metabolisms dropped down to in the 800s. And even when they regained all of the weight, their metabolism stayed that low. So like we said way earlier, it always comes down to the long-term diet and exercise change, which as we mentioned, people don't want to hear, but it's just the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. Make it that lifestyle approach, not that quick fix diet, hey? Always. Yeah. And that's why I like to do a lot of videos online because everyone says, you know, there's this huge push online and it, it's accurate. And it says the only way to lose weight is a calorie deficit. You know, you've got 15 year old influencers saying it, you've got personal trainers saying it, like I get it, it's important. But what that message translates to younger people is if I want to lose weight, I have to be in a calorie deficit. Therefore, I need to count my calories. And I don't think that that's a healthy approach, particularly for young teenagers. And so I like to say, like, if we just use the lifestyle approach, look at what you're doing on average. Can you change one small thing? And Instead of having chocolate every night, can we have it every second night? Or instead of having um, a huge bowl of granola, can we cut that portion down a little bit in the morning and add a little bit of Greek yogurt to it to keep us fuller for longer? Just those small changes overall are going to give us those small amounts of weight loss. But it's like, then if they only see a kilo down in a month, they're disappointed with that because, you know, mass media wants to tell us that we can drop five kilos by Friday to fit into our little black dress. But I'm glad that you as an expert see that and you have that research and that understanding to advocate that slow and steady really wins the race, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's always the way to go. Wonderful. Um, Now, I'd love to finish with a quick case study, which I love that you do these on your TikTok sometimes. Obviously, you don't name names or anything like that. The people are completely anonymous. But you were talking about a guy who came into your clinic and he'd done, I think from memory, it was like a 10 or 12 day detox or like a juice cleanse. Can you talk us through that case study? You did it just a couple of days ago and actually what he experienced metabolically, because I think it's so important because so many people think, you know, I need to give my liver a break. I need to cleanse my body. Um, and that's probably another myth that we can put to bed right now, guys. You don't have to do a cleanse. Um, your body has organs that will cleanse for you. You just need to eat well. You don't need to spend hundreds of dollars on these juices um, for a week. Um, your body can absolutely, as long as you've got functioning kidneys and a functioning liver, um, cleanse for you. <laughs> so take it away. The case study is all yours. <laughs> yeah. So this was an individual who he initially came in to see us for wanting to lose a little bit of weight. Now, this particular person wanted to lose about 15 pounds or so. And so that was his kind of main goal when he came in. So his metabolic rate actually looked pretty good when he first came in because he hadn't started restricting or doing anything to change it. He actually came to us first and his metabolic rate was nice and high. If I'm remembering correctly, it was like right around the like 2100 range, like pretty high for a male. It was looking really, really good. And Mm. so we just made sure that we were doing exactly what we just talked about, fueling him enough. We did not restrict his calories. And I think actually given the amount of exercise and everything that he was doing, we were feeding him right around that 21 to 2300 range because that was still a very small deficit when we accounted for the amount of exercise he was doing and all of those things. So what happened was he did start to lose a little bit of fat, right? And so it was about a five or six month period, but he lost about three and a half or four pounds of fat in that five to six month period, right? However, like we just mentioned, he did not feel that that was fast enough. And he was getting really discouraged because he was hoping to see that that weight loss was much quicker and thought that three to four pounds of fat in a five month period was way too slow. So he decided to take it into his own hands. And so very much against our advice, he went on. It was actually a 21-day detox. I don't even remember the name of it, but I know that there was a lot of smoothies included. And it was a lot of kind of this pitch of it's going to cleanse your liver and do all of these things and you're going to lose all this fat, right? So (laughs) that happens. He did that and he came back. He, we had seen him right before he started the 21-day detox thing. We told him we don't recommend this, but he said, I'm going to do mm-hmm. it anyway. So he did it. He comes back in a day or two after he had finished the detox thing. He's thrilled, right? He's like, I told you this would work. Mm-hmm. I weighed myself on the scale and I'm down seven pounds. I knew this would work. <laughs> and we're like, all right, well, we'll do the body composition and the metabolic test and let's see what happens. And so what happened is Mm -hmm. actually he lost all lean mass. 
meaning muscle, collagen, everything that's oh. not fat. And he actually gained a little bit of fat mass from doing this 21 day detox and his metabolism had dropped. It didn't completely like drop to 900, but it had come down from that roughly 2100 to like 1800 just in that three weeks. And so Mm. that says a couple of things. One, the weight on the scale can be very arbitrary sometimes. (laughs) And two, these quick fixes, just because they might be translating to maybe a number on the scale that you're liking seeing because it dropped doesn't mean that that was actually a healthy, sustainable weight loss. And so needless to say, that proved to him that he should not be doing these detoxes. And we had to go back to what we were doing before, which was eating enough at a very, very small deficit and really work on now restoring that lean mass that he had lost during that 21-day detox. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. What a smack in the face, hey? (laughs) I know. He was oh, very disappointed, but it was, it was a learning tool. So, <laughs> Was he training during the time? Like, was he exercising or did he just do this? I imagine doing a 21-day detox. I don't think I'd have enough energy to exercise or to train. I'd probably just think, you know, this miracle cure will take care of it myself. I'm not going to exercise. I don't have enough energy. So was he actively doing any strength or resistance training or any exercise at all during that time? Do you know? He actually was. It was a little bit less than his usual. So his usual would be some sort of movement five to six days a week for usually like an hour to maybe 90 minutes. And during the detox, it was only about three times a week for an hour. So he did bring it down, but he was still doing some exercise. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So important. So exercise is important, but really nutrition is the big kicker at the end of the day, isn't it? Always. I mean, and I think even a lot of fitness professionals will say that like nutrition is the most important thing for keeping your body healthy. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes is nutrition is king, exercise is queen, and together they make a kingdom. But I'm like, nutrition comes out on top. <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's so interesting. Um, thank you so much for sharing that case study with us because, you know, for our listeners at home, they might see that drop on the scale and they're like, yes, it's going in the right direction. But from your the metabolic testing that you were able to do with him, quote unquote, he saw a drop on the scale, but he actually gained fat mass, didn't he? So his fat mass percentage went up despite the scale weight coming down, which is, it's crazy to think that, isn't it? And I'm sure that happens to so many people. They don't see that. They don't have the, the metabolic testing to reflect that. Yeah, it happens all of the time with people. And I don't want that to be discouraging that if you're losing weight, that's the only thing that's happening. But you're exactly right. When we try to make the quick fixes, yeah, his fat percentage was actually higher than before doing this detox that promised that he was going to lose all this fat. Yeah. And that breaks my heart because muscle mass is, you know, it's golden and particularly for females, it takes us so long to build that, (laughs) that, you know, just having that eat away in in 21 days when he was thinking that he was getting these wonderful results. Oh, it kind of breaks my heart. If that was me, I think I'd leave your clinic in tears. (laughs) I know he was really disappointed, but the positive side of it is that he was willing to take in more food and his muscle mass did start to restore pretty quickly after we did that. But, you know, that's that's stuff after the detox. But he was pretty disappointed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then my final question for you, Alana, is really around we've mentioned small deficits before, obviously being better than huge, large deficits to support us metabolically. What sort of small deficits are we talking? Are we talking sort of two, 300 calories? Like, is, is that enough? Obviously we'll get those small results long-term or are you talking even smaller, like 150, 200 calories? I usually say right around that 200, maybe 300 mark, but yes, right around there. Uh, I know that oftentimes what we see online is 500, but I actually think that, that can be a little bit too much for most people. So 200 is what I pretty much always start with, with individuals who that is something we can do. And then we kind of tweak and change from there. But yeah, it's those really, really small changes. And if you think about it, 200 calories is like two tablespoons of peanut butter. So it's very, very small changes. It's a small snack to us. Like it's, it's a muesli bar, right? Or it's, it's, for some people, it's their Starbucks order, isn't it? Like it's, it's a really small change that you don't have to count calories in order to elicit a small calorie deficit within your own lifestyle. It's just a simple swap from your sugary, huge coffee with your heavy cream into like something like a long black or a green tea. Just that one simple swap is, is enough to allow you to lose fat stores um, sustainably over time. But obviously, as we continue to lose weight, we're in a bit of a smaller body. So we do need to continue to make those small changes over time. But that 
that's the, the beauty of you don't have to count your calories in order to know that you're in a calorie deficit. You just need to make some of those small lifestyle changes over time, but not as many people try to do that all or nothing approach where they're like, I'm cutting out the sugar, I'm giving up the takeaway, I've got no alcohol and I'm 100% clean for X amount of weeks. But it really is just as dietitians recommend those small lifestyle changes over time, isn't it? Can get us to our goal a lot faster than the quick fixes and the restrictive diets. Absolutely. I think it's so important to always set lifestyle changes and behavior changes, then focus on, I have to lose X amount of weight by this period of time. Instead, do exactly what you just said, Leanne, like little changes are going to make a huge difference down the road. Absolutely. And then finally, Elena, can you tell our listeners about your wonderful YouTube channel and also your other social media? Your TikTok is fabulous as well. But I know that you go a lot more in depth um, into in your YouTube channel. So if listeners are wanting to know more, which I certainly will be jumping over to your YouTube channel as well, um, because you've just given us such incredible value. And I think it's really, it'll be so eye opening for so many people. Yeah. So my YouTube channel is under the name of my clinic. So The Calm Clinic and Calm is K-A-H-M as in Mary. So definitely go subscribe. I talk a lot about different case studies, even just the one that I just mentioned and go to a lot of detail about what exactly it was that we did, what we changed with calories and really try to give you kind of real world scenarios. And then we also go over a lot of research in some of the videos of what we're seeing of research into metabolism. My TikTok is actually under my name, which is Elena Eford. And then same thing on Instagram, Elena Eford. And I've been posting a lot of some of it is there's some crossover, but you know, TikTok, there's also some fun stuff on there, whereas YouTube might be a little bit more educational and more business. <laughs> I love it. I think our listeners um, enjoy both platforms. I definitely know I do. Um, I enjoy both as well. But thank you so much for coming on, Elena. It's been um, absolutely eye-opening for so many people, I'm sure. Um, and then in terms of, do you have a website at all or an email? I'm guessing you probably don't do like online consultations because what you do obviously requires them to go into the clinic physically for that metabolic test. So I'm assuming online consultations are out. Yes and no. There's not as, yeah, we can't do a lot of online consultations. In some scenarios, we can. So the best website would be my clinic's website, which is thecomclinic.com. In some cases, we can do virtual because in some instances, we might be able to work with you if you do have like metabolic testing access somewhere where you are. But you're right, for the most part, we can't do virtual consultations. But I'm happy to, even if you reach out via the Calm Clinic's website to answer any questions or again, a lot of that information might be on YouTube because I try to answer the common questions that I get all of the time and even try to answer some specific things even just through like the YouTube videos. Wonderful. All right. And I'll make sure that I link your socials in our show notes as well. So our listeners can go straight there and give you a follow and, and go watch some of your great content. So thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it.